One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, I'm Megan Gibson, and you're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Thursday, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. And every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Today, I'm speaking to the Prime Minister of Iceland, Katrin Jakobsdottir. Since 2017, Jakobsdottir has led a coalition government in the Nordic nation, representing her party, the Left Green Movement. She's consistently rated one of the most trusted politicians in a country that famously distrusts politicians. And she's ushered in a period of political stability, which has allowed Iceland to weather storms, such as the COVID-19 pandemic, with relatively little upheaval. Katrin Jakobsdottir, Prime Minister of Iceland, thank you so much for speaking with me today. I want to start off by saying happy belated birthday. I understand it was your birthday yesterday. It's true. Did you do anything special to celebrate? Not really. <laughs> my, my youngest son was diagnosed with COVID, so the day oh, really, so the day was really hectic. But everybody's doing fine. So well, that's good to hear. It's a birthday to remember. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I think everyone's birthday over the last couple of years is definitely uh, stands out as a unique event I guess you could say. (laughs) Yes absolutely and it's odd because those two years melt together in your mind so (laughs) it's really a very odd phase that we've been going through. This was going to be one of my questions later but since we're discussing it I guess we can jump straight to it. I wanted to ask you about Iceland's COVID experience. Mm -hmm. So I know it was recently announced that the country will be scaling back most of its restrictions and while Obviously, no country has been spared, I guess you could say, from the effects of the pandemic. Iceland seems to have navigated the crisis particularly well. Thank you. As you say, no country has been spared and we've had our share of illness and of loss of life. But when we compare it to other nations, I think we've been doing relatively well. We have 47 people who have died of COVID-19 out of 360,000. And we have uh, just under 70,000 confirmed cases in our population, which again is around 360,000. Probably that number is higher now with this new variant because it's spreading very rapidly. And um, I think when we look at 
the numbers who have been in hospital and who have had severe illness, I think we've been doing fairly well. And I think, I think actually our health system has been quite amazing because they, and obviously it helps that we are so few and so small. So we have managed to have quite a good overview of those who have been infected. But I think the health system have been doing an amazing job really mm -hmm. in treating those who have been ill, but also organizing, for example, vaccinations uh, and also testing, which has been very and interesting because in Iceland, we were usually con not considered to be very organized, but this has been amazingly well organized. We have a high number that has actually decided to accept vaccination, which is also very good. And I think that's really helping us now when we're lifting restrictions. That's really interesting to me because I know, and we can touch on this more in depth later, I know there's a lot of, it's talked a lot about how there's a lot of distrust in politicians within Iceland, yet it seems if there's a high vaccine uptake, there is a lot of trust in at least the health institution. Is that something that has always existed or have you been quite surprised? I think there has always been relatively high trust and that we have also seen that trust actually increasing <laughs> during the pandemic. And I think the reason is that we have been very transparent. There has been a, more information than maybe sometimes too much information, but I think that's very important because people have really had all the information that they needed to take their own and make their own decisions. And I think now around 80% of the population five years and older are fully vaccinated. So mm -hmm. that is quite good, actually. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we have had a discussion here, critical discussion on vaccinations like everywhere. But I think most people are just simply taking and making an informed decision on this. Mm -hmm. And being an island, obviously, and quite reliant on tourism for your economy, you also have managed to stay relatively open, especially when you compare to, you know, countries such as maybe Australia or New Zealand. What kind of thinking went into the decision to try and keep borders as open as much as possible? That was also very much discussed. And some people thought that we should just completely close down. Others were more critical of the restrictions that are on borders where you actually have to, if you come to Iceland, you have to have now a negative PCR test or you or a negative test. But if you live in Iceland and come to the country, then you have a test on the airport. So, or you can do it within 48 hours from arriving. So we are actually trying to ensure that everybody who comes here, either who, those who live here or who, those who are just coming as tourists, and they can actually also present a negative antigen test, not just a PCR test, that they can arrive, but they all have been tested. And then if you're not vaccinated, yeah, then you have to have a test and have a five days quarantine and then another test. And this has actually been, this is something that we have been actually doing for quite some time now. As I said, the time melts into one phase. Mm -hmm. but these rules on the borders have been uh, ongoing for quite some time now, and they seem to be very efficient. But obviously, we're hoping to lift those restrictions also if our optimism proves right here, mm -hmm. considering the pandemic. I wanted to go back to something we briefly touched on about trust. So you've been prime minister of Iceland since 2017, and you've been in that time consistently rated one of the country's most trusted politicians. As I mentioned, mm -hmm. lots of people in Iceland don't have a 
robust trust in the political system in general, or politicians specifically, I should say. What is it do you think that you do differently or that you offer that allows people to trust you? It's always very difficult to talk about yourself. <laughs> so I, I find it I find it really difficult to to really try to analyze myself as a politician, but I think I can say, obviously, I have some experience. I've been in the Icelandic parliament for 15 years. I also served as the Minister for Education and Culture and Research during the time of a left-wing government here in Iceland, 2009 to 2013. I think that experience obviously has shaped my view in politics. And I think what It's important that you we ha all have ideals and we have goals and we have policies. But then we also need to think about the people who don't share our views <laughs> and don't share our policies. And we need to try to develop some understanding of the whole of the population. And I think maybe because I'm very interested in people and trying to understand people and trying to understand their circumstances. I think that has really at least been a very vital factor uh, in the fact that I have stayed in politics for 15 years. Because in Iceland, I think it's the same as in the rest of Europe, that we see a lot of politicians coming and going. And it has changed in Iceland from earlier years where, you know, parliamentarians stayed for decades. Mm -hmm. That has become quite a rarity now in mm -hmm. uh, our country. Yeah, just for listeners who might not know, I think it was in the two years before you became prime minister, there was, what, four different prime ministers? Three different prime ministers, three, and a lot of political instability, absolutely. And I think actually we've been dealing with political instabilities ever since the economic crisis in 2008, which was not just an economic shock for Iceland, but it was also a shock, exactly as you mentioned, trust. Uh, because before the economic crisis, trust in politics and trust in politicians was measured very high in Iceland, mm -hmm. and it dropped drastically. So we have been gradually gaining that trust, but it's trust is a very sensitive thing. Uh, you can easily lose it overnight, but it takes a lot of time to build it up again. So mm -hmm. I think that's a project that we need to be very humble about and very respectful of, because... Trust is such a very intrinsic factor in our democracy. Uh, mm -hmm. So the political system actually works. And I think what we can say that the Icelandic society after the crisis has grown a lot more critical. But also I think we are gradually gaining more political stability. So Because it's good and healthy to be critical, but it's also very important to try to keep political stability in a country. Mm -hmm. So just to dive into that stability you're mentioning, so you're the leader of your party, the Left Green Movement, and since last September's election, you've led a coalition with a conservative and a center-right party. Mm -hmm. Before that, you, you were in a similar coalition with parties that were more to the right. How have you managed to achieve a stability with that, those differing parties and those different ideologies, you could say. Maybe it was because of the political instability in Iceland and turbulence that has been had been going on. We had two rather unexpected elections in 2016 and 2017 uh, that really created the circumstances that the three parties that have been in government since 
actually formed the coalition government. And it was unexpected and it is unusual. And I think actually, because I think we have all learned a lot from that process and I think we have learned the importance of dialogue and conversation and trying to build bridges and understanding between people who think very differently about the world and society. And then, of course, I think that the government has been shaped by this unexpected project, which is COVID-19, which somehow changes the way you work in government. You, you simply just have to tackle everything differently because you're faced with quite an you know, unpredictable situation. So what happened in the last election, 21, which, were, which was the first period, election period for some time, which actually just finished in four years <laughs> on a normal time, the governmental parties kept their majority and actually increased that majority. But I won't say it's not difficult to be in government with difficult with different parties and also difficult parties. <laughs> it was a Freudian slip there. It's always difficult to be in government because I also have the experience uh, to be in a government with uh, a party which was much closer to my party, the Social Democrats. And that also created difficult circumstances. So I think somehow if you just embrace that fact that being in government is going to be difficult... And it won't work unless you're ready to do a lot of work and a lot of conversation and dialogue. <laughs> then I think everything is possible. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. From the New Statesman World Review comes France Elects, a special podcast series exploring the main candidates and the big issues shaping the campaign to be France's next president. I'm Ido Vok, and over the next two months, I'll be joined by special guests to dissect incumbent Emmanuel Macron's record, his rivals to the right and left, and key issues such as foreign policy and the climate. Just search World Review on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. One area that of difference in opinions that really strikes me, especially at this moment, is you and your party's opposition to Iceland's membership of NATO. Mm. And you've said in the past that you respect that the majority of parliaments and the majority of Iceland wants to remain in the alliance and so you won't push the issue and push to leave but I'm curious if your view personally has shifted on NATO in light of recent aggression from Russia not just on the border of Ukraine but with the Baltics and with your Nordic allies my opinion and my party's opinion have not changed during our time in government and during the last years. And as you correctly say, we have we have actually a policy on national security with the support of the overwhelming majority in the Icelandic parliament. And that is why we decided not to push that, as you say. But as the prime minister, I'm also an official for the Republic of Iceland. And as such an official, I, I really represent that policy, the national security policy. So therefore, I have been participating in all the leaders meeting in NATO. And I think actually, it's very important to have a voice within that uh, context, which stresses really the importance of dialogue and peaceful solutions. And I think actually, there I'm really speaking also on behalf of the overwhelming majority of the Icelandic population, because as you know, we're a nation without an army. We, as a small country, are really very conscious of the importance of dialogue and peaceful solutions, but also the importance of the rule of law and international order. And that is always a, a main for our main focus in this cooperation. Well, as a NATO member, you and Iceland would have a say in expansion. So as prime minister, would you be opposed to NATO expanding to include Ukraine or Sweden or Finland or Georgia? Does that throw any kind of ethical problems for you? We respect the will of those nations to make their own decisions on that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that is really our our core view on that. Iceland itself has dealt with some, uh, you wouldn't say aggression, but some increased Russian military activity nearby in, in recent years with submarine activity in the nearby mm-hmm. waters I'm referring to specifically. As you mentioned, you're the only NATO member without your own military. How has Iceland's approach or th- thought process about its own security evolved since you've become prime minister? I think, um, and not just since I became prime minister, but probably ever since the national security police policy was agreed upon in the Icelandic parliament is that... Um, the concept of security in Iceland has a little bit changed because we see security as a much broader issue than just security concerning military activities, which is also very important and we are very conscious of. But we have begun to talk about also 
not just military activities, but also other threats, like internet security or cybersecurity. We have been strengthening our cooperation in that area uh, internationally. We have been also strengthening our infrastructure concerning that. We have also become very mindful of the security threats which is posed to us by climate change. So I think what's happening in Iceland, like probably in the rest of our, not the rest of the world, but at least in our neighboring countries, is this notion of security as a much broader issue that we need to tackle from that broad uh, background. And I have been a very adamant spokesperson for that, that we need Mm -hmm. to think about security when we're talking about public health, for example. And you can actually say that maybe uh, COVID-19 was also a security threat. Mm -hmm. And this is maybe also a part of the language because in Iceland, we have the same word for safety and security. So when we talk about security, we are both talking about what maybe it's regularly called national security and social security. (laughs) And I think that really is something that reflects in the Icelandic view on that. But also, as you, because you asked specifically on this, because we don't have an army, obviously we are conscious of this. And we have have a, a defense agreement with the United States and also we're members of NATO, so we have regularly visits from from representatives of the other NATO states. Mm-hmm. And in terms of looking for diplomatic solutions to dealing with things like Russia and aggression, what, I guess, strategies have you, has Iceland itself employed, or have you seen different alleys use that you think is a good solution or a good start? I think, and there we share views, for example, with leaders in Germany, France, etc., which have been stressing the importance of this dialogue. And I think, I think actually there Iceland is really, even though we don't have a military, we are really a part of a very broad dialogue on this in the international cooperation. For the first time since 2001, all five Nordic nations have left-wing leaders. And also four out of five of those leaders happen to be women. While acknowledging that each individual nation has its own unique set of political circumstances and challenges, I was just wondering if there's any anything that other social democratic parties in Europe, which have been challenged in recent years, could learn from the new Nordic left. I guess you could call it. This has changed just during my time as a prime minister, because when I started, I think there was a right-wing prime minister in Denmark, Norway, and Finland. (laughs) (laughs) So so this is a very recent development. And obviously, all those other leaders come from the social democrats. While while I'm the chair of the left greens, but obviously we have a lot in common. And I think... When you, because you've been talking about safety and security, I think the Nordic countries really share that notion that a very strong society, and then I'm talking about the welfare system, I'm talking about the education system, I'm talking about these threats of society which really make a society and ensure that equality, which is really a core issue for us who live here in the Nordic countries, I think obviously we share those values, which really revolve around the fact that everybody should have opportunities in their life and should have those basic rights, free education, equal access to health care. I think actually, because you began talking about COVID, that one of the reasons for Iceland's results is the fact that we have this equal access to the health system, which is such, a, such an important value. 
So I think obviously we share those values very strongly. We have a very tight cooperation and we talk a lot about not just uh, social issues, but also economic issues. Environment has been very has been very prominent in our discussion and increased the emphasis on climate. And then obviously we also talk about security in the, in the broader context. So I think we have a very tight cooperation. We have that tight cooperation, even though some of us have been from the right and others from the left. But obviously we share, we have more in common those who are coming from the left-leaning parties in the Nordic and I know, I mean, across Europe, as well as in lots of Nordic countries, there's a, a problem with political fragmentation and a rising far right or radical right. Mm-hmm. Is Has that been an issue in Iceland? You could say that we have sensed this uh, threat of radical right or far right, however you coin it. Really, yes, we have... But we have not seen it on the rise maybe as much as some of the other Nordic countries. But we have definitely felt that in the political discussion. For example, when we talk about immigrants and when we talk about issues maybe concerning moral values, you could feel that, for ex- you know, you, you, when we talk about issues like... Uh, gender neutrality and gender autonomy, which have been quite prominent in the Icelandic political debate, you obviously uh, get, get see these tendencies and hear those tendencies. But we haven't had political parties on the rise. Why do you think that is? It's difficult to say. I'm not saying that it could not happen in Iceland, but the political circumstances and the big issues have been maybe a little bit different here than in the other Nordic countries. Do you think there's a lot more social cohesion in Iceland? I think I think you I think you actually could see a rise of those tendencies in Iceland just the same as in the other countries. I think so. But maybe the fact that we're so few and small strengthens that social cohesion that you mentioned. It's a different project when we are 370,000 or when you're 7 or 8 million. So Obviously, circumstances are different, but you, you could also say that sometimes Iceland is a little bit, you know, lagging behind. You see a political tendency somewhere else, and then you see it happen in Iceland later. So I'm not going to judge what's going to happen. I also wanted to ask, Iceland is often described as the most literate nation, and it ha- certainly has a robust literary culture. You yourself have a background in studying Icelandic fiction. Why do you think it has such a that such a strong part of the culture? What is there something about the culture, the Icelandic culture, that fosters that love for literature? Well, at least we like to think, you know, talk about ourselves as a saga nation. I think in 1918 we became sovereign, and in 1944 we became an independent republic. So obviously, we have been very, we have been a little bit shaped by the discussion in the 20th century on the importance of language and culture. And I think actually that has quite a strong effect still on on the Icelandic identity, language and culture. We also have a very strong tradition that, you know, of publishing books, reading books, writing books. Sometimes it's said that everybody in Iceland writes at least one book. And it's just normal that people say, I'm going to write a book. And before every Christmas, there's actually what's called the book flow, which is you know, then usually in the most of the books are published. So it's a very common Christmas gift in Iceland mm-hmm. to give a book. I think we, because just simply of technological change, you can see the fact that 
playing computer games is now a more dominant hobby than reading books. And this has changed just over one generation. So I'm not sure how we are going to see things evolve here in Iceland. And personally, I think it's going to be quite a challenge to maintain the Icelandic language because of the English influence here, not just in television and films, but also in this this new reality, this new cyber reality, really. So that is going to be a challenge. And then reading and writing in Icelandic is going to be a very important factor because I think people love really reading about their own society and their mm-hmm. own reality and making that connection, which happens when you read a good work of fiction and somehow you somehow you connect and learn more about yourself. Mm-hmm. For me, reading literature is a little bit like psychotherapy, really. <laughs> oh, so. <laughs> yeah, because you somehow, if you make that connection and you feel, oh, yes, now I really understand why I'm feeling this, because you're reading about some character which actually has that same feeling. So I think that's quite, that can be a quite a unique, somehow sublime experience. Now I have to ask what you've been reading recently that you've connected with. That's, you know, now I'm not going to look too good because then, you know, I studied literature, but I mainly studied crime fiction. And when things are heavy and work, I read crime fiction at night, mm-hmm. switch from my reality to another reality. But I love during Christmas, I was reading new Icelandic authors. And I always get excited like a child when I'm reading new authors and thinking, oh, this is going to be so interesting to see how she or he or she evolves really as a writer. I'm sure lots of people will be heartened to hear that you're not finding too many similarities between your day-to-day job and crime fiction. No, I probably wouldn't read crime fiction if I had to deal with crime. <laughs> and, you know, in Iceland, we really love crime fiction, mainly because we have so few crimes. I think that's really... You think that's it? Yeah, yeah, I think so. <laughs> Okay, that's all the time we have. Prime Minister Jakobsdorf, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. This has been the World Review from the New Statesman. You can read all of our international coverage on newstatesman.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend or even an enemy and rate us and leave us a nice review. The producer has been Adrian Bradley. The team will be back on Thursday. I'm Megan Gibson. Thanks for listening and until next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.